One of the problems with being up here is that you don't get the view that you all have looking this way. I don't want to turn my back on you, but because I love that we have this beautiful Jesus up front here, that this prophet and teacher and healer was so central to our forebears when they built this church back at the end of the last century that they put him up front and center. And I love just as much that at night, the skin of our Jesus shifts from being fair Caucasian to being brown-skinned, which is actually what he looked like when he traveled the earth 2,000 years ago, where we know that. And I'm pretty sure our forebears back at the start of the 20th century when they installed this window and when they ordered it from Tiffany, I'm pretty sure they didn't have it in mind that their Jesus would be anything but light-skinned because they didn't know what we know now. But this is what they got. Jesus, who at least in the evening is more historically accurate. It makes me think of an old friend of my mom who had a talent for twisting up sayings a little bit. And one time she said to my mom, you know, God moves in mischievous ways. (laughs) Back when I was in theological school, some people would say to me, you sure say God a lot for a Unitarian Universalist. And I wondered, am I in the right denomination? I worried about this and I talked about it to some colleagues and some teachers. Was there going to be a place for me in this tradition? Around that time, I saw an essay in our denominational magazine by Reverend Rosemary Bray McNatt, who I later got to know a little bit. She's a black UU minister who ministered most of her career at the First Universalist Church in Brooklyn. But back then, she was writing and sharing a similar story of her own. She wrote, I had engaged in a spiritual struggle only a few years earlier that nearly ended in my leaving our faith for a more traditional expression of Christianity. Yet in the end, I could not go. Unitarian Universalism won my heart and mind because both God and freedom are precious to me. And it is only within our non-creedal tradition that I felt there was a chance, however slight, that I might lay claim to both. Our stained glass windows, both up front and particularly on this east wall, they remind us that liberal Christianity is where we come from. And you know, don't you, that this word liberal is not the same word that gets applied in the political spectrum. When we talk about liberal religion, It's because that word liber, the root of liberal, means free. And we're just saying that in this tradition, 
being liberal means being open-minded, that we're free to use our hearts and minds to follow where they lead us. We're open to diverse expressions of spirituality and theology. And in this month when we're celebrating 200 years of universalism, I want to affirm with you all, spiritual companions, that there are riches and there are resources in our roots. When I followed my wife to a UU church and then joined it and found this vibrant congregation I wanted to be part of, at that time I did not intend to be led back to a new and more liberating kind of Christianity. That wasn't what I was seeking at all, but that's what happened. God moves in mischievous ways. And that journey, it nourished my soul and it set me free. What about you? Is it possible that going deeper into our universalist faith can help strengthen and sustain you for the living of these days. Universalism isn't complicated, really. You can dig into discussions and disagreements and all that that humans have with each other and that's part of our history, but it asserts that the simple fact of universalism is the belief that in the end the nature of God is love and that none of us are beyond it. As one song puts it, the power of the universe knows my name. And this is what Jesus came to teach, that we are all part of a great and abiding love. And he would ask his followers, so why are you afraid? You hear this in the parables he told, like the one pictured over there on the lower two inside windows about the symbolic story of a son who basically told his father, I wish you were dead. He said, give me my inheritance now. Because he wanted to go out and make his way in the world. And the father, who must have been brokenhearted, he did. He ran away from home and he squandered what his father had given him. But at some point in time, and that's the, that's the window on the left, he's been uh, tasked because he got rid of all his money, he lost his money, he's feeding the pigs for Hebrews, the most unclean of animals, so he'd really gotten as low as he could get. It's another story, but I was preaching about that one time, and I hadn't looked at it closely enough, and our dear Reverend Janet Bowering was shaking her head, and after the service, she said to me, because I thought those were the lost sheep, and she said, look at that closer, those are pigs, and I went, oh, of course they are. <laughs> but so the son, finally, he comes to his senses, he's gotten as low as he can get, and he comes back home. Does his father banish him or punish him? No, he welcomes his son back. This is the, pic, the window on the right. He welcomes his son back with open arms. He even throws a party for him, which greatly annoys the older brother, as it should any sibling, right? And Jesus was telling this story to say, the love of God is like this. Always welcome us back home, no matter how bad we have screwed things up. 
Growing up in the South, I had ambivalent feelings about Jesus, but mostly because of the hateful things that some people did in his name. And this is still a problem, right? As we heard Rob Bell say, Jesus' story has been hijacked by a number of other stories, stories Jesus isn't interested in telling because they have nothing to do with what he came to do. The plot has been lost, and it's time to reclaim it. One of my teachers in theological school, a pretty well-known feminist theologian named Carter Hayward, she wrote a book about this called Saving Jesus from Those Who Are Right. And she says that she first wrote this book as a response to the so-called religious right. But then she came to see that those who are right can be any of us, any of us so set in our ways or judgments that we have it, politically, intellectually, or spiritually. You know, in this tradition, we try to be open to diversity and difference and even to uncertainty, to new ways of understanding, to the wonder and mystery of this life and the beauty of this earth and the spirit moving in and around us, however we understand that. In this way, we are the opposite of fundamentalism, which says that beliefs and doctrines, they are set, and they're not to be questioned or challenged. I wonder if you know that Jesus was against fundamentalism in his day, too. He regularly criticized the Pharisees, who were a sect of people who took things literally and who cared more about being right and proper than they did about mercy and justice and faithfulness. Jesus was a reformer. He was willing to even go against the tradition when people's well-being was threatened. In this way, he was a humanist because he was particularly concerned for the well-being of people particularly those at the margins, whom he called the least of these. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Do you know that there are significant groups of oppressed people who see the Bible as a text of liberation, that it has inspired struggles for freedom and dignity? I'll have more to say about this next week, but this month when we're digging into universalism, I'm so aware that the theology matters. What we think and believe and give our hearts to will shape how we perceive the world and how we act. In these days, as we celebrate 200 years of universalism in Haverhill, I'm feeling more deeply called to explore the implications of this theology for how we might live in these days. And I wonder if any of you are feeling this too. If so, let me know. I have books and articles and lots of stuff I am eager to share. And I'm already thinking maybe we have a universalist theology group or class in the fall. I hope that our month of universalism might be compelling enough for you 
that you're inspired to do your own theological work or continue it, what you've been working on. To engage in the spiritual struggle of discerning what it is that you give your heart to, to what nourishes and sustains you. And I hope you can trust that this church and our open-hearted tradition, these are good places to do this. Two weeks ago, Tori spoke about the off-center cross in the circle that is up front in her Universalist church in Essex and how that has been a symbol of Universalism and how she discovered that off-center cross and the space around it to be a gift and a blessing. She said, I would find deep healing in that space. There was so much room to move. And isn't this what we try to hold open a space for here? Room to move and grow, ways to find both spiritual depth and freedom. Jesus is important to me, but I'm not trying to convert you. I'm on the journey too, and I'm inviting you to find the way or ways that will lead you home. After Tori talked about that off-center cross in Essex, I joked that some of you might like to move our Jesus off-center. <laughs> but thinking about it since then, I come to the realization that that's actually what our UU tradition has done in the last 50 or 75 years. But look at what our forebears did. Even though they set Jesus in the center, look at this empty inviting space on both sides. It looks like a garden or a temple, doesn't it? I imagine it as a sanctuary, where an outdoor sanctuary, where you might hear birds singing, you might see new life springing up as it does at this time of year. Certainly spaces where you can feel the spirit and the mystery moving in your midst. I hope those windows to the left and the right of our friend remind you that there is plenty of room for you here. Our dear Sally Lieberman, when she was director of religious education here, she would sometimes look up at our Jesus and smile and tell me about the Christian church she grew up in, where she learned to see Jesus as a friend, a trusted companion and guide. I wonder, what if we could come to see him that way, as a spiritual companion, as a soul friend? Not the only one, of course. For me, Jesus is a teacher and a prophet, an example of a loving and courageous life. A man who was so full of the Spirit, so aware that he was loved by God, that he had an uncommon presence and power. People followed him because they felt inspired and healed when they were around him. This is the Jesus who traveled among the common people, 
telling them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. When he saw them tired and struggling, he offered them a way and a blessing. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. When things are quiet around here during the week, sometimes I come in here and sit for a while. I think about those folks who came before us, and I wonder if their spirits are watching over us still. I like to believe that. I look up at Jesus, and in his open hands, I hear his welcome. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We are part of an ongoing story a progression of open-hearted people of faith. We are here tending our spiritual lives and journeying with one another, reaching out beyond these walls, joining hands with others from diverse faiths to help heal and bless our world. And it is good, isn't it? Aren't we so fortunate? Aren't we so blessed? Who knows what goodness lies ahead for us and for our world? Will you join me in prayer? God of grace and God of glory, on your people pour out your power. Crown your ancient church's story, bring its bud to glorious flower. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage for the facing of this hour. Fill us with a living vision. Heal our wounds that we may be bound as one beyond division in the struggle to be free. Grant us wisdom, grant us courage, ears to hear and eyes to see, ears to hear and eyes to see, now and forever. Amen.